And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's a collector's edition today. It is the real deal. It is Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth, the last episode with Bruce Anderson. Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa today. And this this kind of reminds me of whatever day that was back in the late 80s when, when MASH had its final episode. <laughs> and then the 2000s, Friends had its last episode. People will always regard this, what you're about to hear, the same way. Here it is, the last episode, regular uh, episode. Well, and the whole cast is turned out, you and me. <laughs> the two Everybody's of us here. here. All the friends are here. All the mashers are here. For we'll smoke, mirrors, and the truth. But this is the, the, the final, that's right, yeah. This is the final, like, regular episode. That's right. Because you've decided you've had enough. You just can't take it anymore you've come up with every possible smoke mirrors and the truth example over the last whatever it is almost three years you have no more there are no more smoke mirrors and the truth and i put them all out and now i have no more opinions except the ones (laughs) that i'll have for friday but i was like running out of opinions and even i started to think "Hmm, do i really care about that opinion so i do have some for today though Okay, and, we'll, we'll, um, we'll get to them in a moment. We'll get to those in a moment because we, you know, we have to mark this. This is a this is a major moment in the lives mm-hmm. of a lot of Canadians because they've been writing ever since word leaked out on the grapevine <laughs> that you were shutting her down for Wednesdays. It's SMT would along. be no more, and I've been getting lots of letters. Let's move it along, champ. And it's <laughs> some really nice letters. Some, you know. People who are really upset by the fact that you're uh, pulling the plug on Wednesdays. Um, you know, some of your fans on uh, YouTube have, uh, have been writing as well. <laughs> the, the They're very upset. commentary in the world that you can find is on YouTube, as we all know. <laughs> a lot of people uh, just love to. Well, I'm telling you, views. this is a big show, and I got dressed it's up It's been for a lot it. of fun. I, I've enjoyed it. It's been a great uh, way for us to uh, talk about politics and, and um and life a little bit uh and yeah. i look forward to doing it from time to time and i love doing friday shows and um yeah 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 well, bruce is not going far so we'll always he he as he says he'll always be here for fridays for good talk with Chantel. and i'm sure there's going to be the odd time we can drag him back into the studio haul out that great smoke mirrors and the truth theme music and uh, have a special edition in the meantime, I'm all dressed up for this show. I'm wearing my Grampy sweater, as those That's watching nice on one. YouTube can can tell. I like that. What is are your that, what yes, are you, or is that another uh, leading brand? You're a very brand conscious guy. I, you know, I forget which. I think this is an LL Bean mm. down in Portland, Maine. Very nice. That's good. You know, I usually just buy Canadian, but occasionally going back. 50 years I've been going to it. You just have to remember to keep your hand down for the viewers on YouTube. If you, if you put your hand up too high, they can't see the book that you're trying to sell. 
Um, there, you mean that, this there one? You yeah, it's one. actually yeah. on every book. <laughs> we got it all over the place. Uh, um, anyway, Grampy Sweater. What do your grandkids call you? They call uh, you Grandpa? Grandpa and Gampa. But, you know, it evolves a little bit. <laughs> yes. It evolves a little bit. I'm Grampy, and I, I, I love it. Papa sometimes, but Grampy usually. All right. Um, this is that time of year. I wrote about it in the buzz the other day where we drag out all the um, year-end interviews and the year-end panels. But the year-end interviews are mostly with the prime minister, um, and that goes back decades and decades. Used to, used to just do one a year, and those were pretty special moments. Um, and I, I, I always tend to remember Bruce Phillips, who was the CTV bureau chief. You'll remember Bruce from the seventies and eighties. Yeah, sure uh, do. And was a, you know, a, a terrific journalist. And he used to do these fabulous interviews that people would wait around for, for weeks, uh, to hear his interview with Pierre Trudeau. And they were pretty good, pretty good interviews. And a couple of them were really good. Anyway, now prime ministers, I guess, since Mulroney, have spread it around. You know, they do all the networks. They do the, you know, the all the print uh, services, or most of them. Um, and as a result of that, they all tend to kind of blend into each other. They're all kind of s- the same. Um, so there, there are rarely any big moments in those year-end interviews. Although the one that, uh, you know, a lot of us tend to, uh, to watch is uh, Terry DeMonte's um, interview with uh, Justin Trudeau. They've been friends for years before Justin got into politics, and Terry doesn't pretend to make this a, a journalistic interview. It's two friends sitting down, kind of shooting the breeze. Mm. But he gets a lot out of it <laughs> as a result. And this year's, this year's interview with, um, with the Prime Minister by uh, Terry DeMonte uh, in I think they did it in Vancouver, but it's a, he's a Montreal-based, or it was a Montreal-based broadcaster. He's retired now. But I'm not sure. Maybe he's living in Vancouver now. Um, anyway, it's a really interesting interview. The, the, the stuff that I pulled out of it is he basically got Trudeau to say that a lot of the problems that are facing the country in terms of division and this kind of burned down institutions uh, attitude that some people have is a result of the convoy and the influence on the convoy by American interests, the far right pushing convoy organizers to go after the Trudeau government, the progressive liberal government in their terms. Um, it's funny because some progressives don't think it's very progressive at all, but nevertheless, that's what is suggested here, that it was the American right wing who pushed, and not only pushed, but financed. And I think Trudeau's term in this interview is a huge financing from the American right of the convoy moment. Those numbers have been tossed around during the discussions about the convoy, about just how much money was involved. Um but it's interesting that here a couple of years later, when those kind of things, that kind of attitude is kind of buried away now, moved on, trying to deal with other things, that Trudeau goes back to that. 
kind of sees that as a major moment in the way the country has unfolded since. What did you make of that? Well, I thought that, uh, well, first of all, I think Justin Trudeau probably knows more than anybody exactly what the extent of uh, American financial support or funding for the convoy was. I think it's it's likely that that information was gathered. And so if he says that he believes that there was significant involvement, um, I don't certainly have evidence to refute that. I think that there's no question that there was rhetorical support and there continues to be that kind of rhetorical support. I mean, I think it was just a week ago that um, Joe Rogan, uh, who has a massive, massive audience on YouTube, as you know, Peter, he talked about um, uh, Justin Trudeau in an extremely disparaging way. I mean, he's entitled to do that office, but he talked about Trudeau's, uh, pardon my word, shithole communist government. Um, it's a, it's very aggressive. And why is he doing that? Why, why are others like him uh, deciding that they're going to really have at Canada? The theory that Trudeau laid out in that Demonte interview was that this was because uh, these right-wingers in the United States have a problem seeing Canada appear to be a place that's successful and progressive, and so they need to, you know, attack it as a way of showing their bona fides or, or making the case that America shouldn't go there, that kind of thing. That part of it I felt a little bit less uh, persuaded by, to be honest. But in, uh, in I think it's Susan Delacourt's piece that uh, you and I were both reading this morning, right? In the yeah. piece before that conversation, that part of the conversation, I was really struck by something else that the prime minister was doing. And I, and I agreed with him. Um, he talked about what's going on in the United States. And he said that we do as a country need to be concerned about those influences um, arriving and becoming a more mainstream in Canada. Now, there are going to be people who are saying we need more of that. I see them on Twitter every day. You, you and I both see them on YouTube every day. They're out in force. I don't know how many of them are mechanized, bots, trolls, what have you, but it's aggressive and it's never ending. And the stuff that people say uh, on the heels of things like Donald Trump using Adolf Hitler's language uh, is shocking to me, it, and it never will not be shocking to me that somebody who is leading the polls to be president of the United States says the things about immigrants that Donald Trump is saying. He said two or three days ago, and then again yesterday, he repeated them. He said, I know people like, are unhappy that I'm using this language, he said, uh, but hear me out. And he said, and I don't read, I didn't read Mein Kampf, but uh, people from around the world are coming and they're poisoning our country and they're ruining the blood of our country. Um, these are very shocking, shocking times when we look at American democracy. Uh, he is a fascist and he is a racist. And if we don't think that those things are happening here, it's because we're not paying close enough attention in my view. And so good for Justin Trudeau to be talking about those influences and the risk that they become more insinuated into Canada. I happen to believe that there's a very real chance that the next election is going to be about whether or not we want that kind of conservative influence in Canada. 
And I think part of what um, Mr. Trudeau was doing in this interview was raising the profile of that choice, saying, look, I could sit here and talk about the things that my government has done. We can put a platform together for what we do in the future, but we maybe also want to talk about uh, this question of what does conservative mean? And what will it mean for Canada if conservative in Canada starts to become more like what conservative means in the United States? So I thought it was quite a, an important interview, um, and, but that was the part that, that struck me the most. Uh, it, you know, and it's obviously his comments, they didn't come by accident, let's put it this way. He's trying to raise that that issue sure and he's he also sure trying, he he's, yeah. you know he's clearly trying to paint the opposition in that same corner the conservatives the the um Polyev's, uh, party um now you know that that is uh, that's going to be quite the dividing line between the two of them and how they go about it and how Polyev reacts to it because mm-hmm. he's riding he's riding a similarly difficult line he doesn't want to alienate those people who feel that way by, you know, criticizing them uh, too much. That's why he, you know, that's why he shook hands with the convoy people, right? At a distance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He shook hands with them. Um, So he's, he's trying to, he's trying to be, walk a careful line there. Trudeau is going to try to push it. It seems from these comments, I don't think they came by accident, he, and I don't think you did. You do either. No. Uh, no. He wants to get that out there. He realized certain things align themselves that may benefit um, the parties that are trying to stop Polyev, the Liberals, the NDP, whomever, the Bloc in in Quebec. Yeah, uh, knowing that it's aligned with the American election a year from now, so. Yeah, there are going to be a lot of people too. I think who are going to um, well, I don't know about a lot, but there'll be some in the in the commentariat who will criticize Trudeau for doing this. In the interview uh, that we're talking about, I think he he raised abortion rights, uh, and he said, uh, you know, we've seen something happen in the United States that people said would never happen: the reversal of Roe v. Wade, uh, the loss of uh, a, a woman's right to choose what to do with her own health. Um, and he said, we need to, I think he said, we need to be conscious that that could happen. If it could happen there, it could happen here. And I think you're absolutely right, Peter, that what he's doing is saying not every conservative thinks this way, not every conservative wants to roll back a woman's right to choose, but some do. And the question of what kind of conservative movement is going to be influential if Pierre Polyev wins an election is a legitimate question in my opinion it is legitimate to put the onus on Pierre Polyev to answer the questions more directly and to not I don't want to say get away with but I mean the risk is that he's doing exactly what you do or what you said which is that he sends messages out to the more extreme elements of his party that aren't necessarily heard by everyone else but reassure them that he's, you know, he's got their values and interests at heart. Um, and he tries to keep the different parts of the conservative movement all hearing enough to make them feel energized to support him in the next election. There's nothing wrong with that. That's all fair ball. I don't like some of what that uh, 
that is from a substantive standpoint, but that's just my opinion. Um, but I think the challenge that Trudeau has is if he doesn't raise these issues, if he doesn't try to draw out this contrast, is anybody else? Um, and that is a little bit of a question for uh, news organizations, some of which are trying to do this. Um, but there are others that aren't. And uh, we've talked about that before. And I think it, so I would expect that we'll see more effort by the prime minister and others on the liberal side to keep on pushing for that uh, that clarity uh, from Pierre Polyev uh, and uh, about what the conservative movement would look like if they were to win an election here in Canada. And I think it's in Canadians' interest to have that be part, a bigger part of the conversation uh, for the next year. It's interesting that this comes at a time, and I, you know, I'm sure Trudeau didn't have any um, any inkling of this when when he made his remarks. Uh, it sounds like there, it was a few days ago, but just last night uh, in the United States, the uh, Colorado Supreme Court um, made a pretty uh, major ruling that could have a huge impact on the way the American election unfolds, unless it's overturned by the Supreme Court, which is possible. Uh, it'll go to the Supreme Court. But the ruling was basically that uh, Trump is disqualified as a candidate for president, at least on the ballot in Colorado. But this is a, a thing that could spread a little bit because there are other states that are doing this, are, are considering the same thing in their Supreme Courts, state Supreme Courts. But this was a, a major decision um, that is, 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 is thrown a thrown a spanner in the works, as they say, or, or they used to say years ago, in, in the UK, in terms of uh, the Republican, uh, the Trump strategy. And I was fascinated last night that the other Republican candidates for president, such as they are, well behind, um, all came out on Trump's side said, this is outrageous. The courts have no no right to enter into this. This is simply a matter for voters, not for courts. So once again here, they've all aligned, even Chris Christie. There was uh, only one who wasn't, Asa Hutchinson. Yeah, but, but he's, yes. he's out of it already, right? I mean, he, he's already yeah. dropped out. Um, so even Chris Christie, though, was uh, was supportive of that. So that that fight at the same time, it's now, nobody is having any trouble saying Trump's a fascist, just like you did a few moments ago. And they're saying it fully recognizing that, you know, fascism to some people is evil. But fascism to many people also can be extremely popular. We've witnessed it. We've seen that. Yep. Yep. And we continue to see it. In, in other places in the, in our world today. Mm -hmm. And so uh, people have to um, uh, tread carefully in this discussion that's going to take place. Trump is now playing the, you know, parroting the Hitler words. I don't care what he says. I, I, I believe him when he says he hasn't read Mein Kampf. I don't think he's ever read a book. You know, well, he, you know, his, uh, his first wife, Ivana, I gather, had said in an interview yeah. some years ago, yeah, he kept speeches, Hitler speeches, on his bedside uh, reading table. Now, I, I don't know who does that. I don't know if that's true, but that's what she said, apparently. Uh, anyway, 
we don't need to we don't need to litigate whether he read Hitler or you know uses the same kind of thematics. There's no question in my mind that he uses the same thematics that that Hitler did, and the idea that a, a single individual should be above the law should basically decide what what is good for everybody and should be able to um, <clears throat> uh, punish his opponents. Uh, all of the things that he's saying are should be more terrifying to more people in America. And the fact that they're not is quite worrying to me anyway, and, and I think should be to many Canadians as well, because whether or not you believe that those influences will happen here, um, even though I think there is some evidence that that has uh, started to become the case, um, this is still our our neighbor. This is still a country that we have a giant relationship with every day. Um, and the risk of it becoming destabilized by another Trump presidency uh, is not something to kind of sleepwalk towards. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's the Colorado decision is, is fascinating. I agree with you. I um, It's fascinating in a number of respects. First of all, I think the, the court has stayed its decision until January the 3rd, I think, because the 4th of January is the day in which they have to print the ballots. And they wanted to give the Supreme Court of the United States an opportunity if Trump was going to appeal the decision or somebody's going to appeal the decision to the Supreme Court to give that Supreme Court a chance to opine. I think it's a good thing. I think that it's better if the Supreme Court rules on this um, and the the legal scholars I was listening to this morning talk about this. Um, they'd read the decision and they read the dissent because it wasn't a unanimous decision. And they said the dissent was quite weak. And the decision was included language where the judges said, we understand the weight of this decision. We understand essentially that it may not be popular. But what our job is to do is to read the law and to describe how the law should be applied in this situation. And for those who haven't had a chance to read up on this yet, basically the law is uh, a piece of the constitution that said, if you've been involved in an insurrection, you're not eligible to run for office. And now the dissenters are saying, yes, but uh, that shouldn't apply to presidents, even though they can't really fashion an argument based on anything in the constitution. So it feels like it's a pretty strong legal decision. But then the question is, is the Supreme Court, if they handle it, if they take it on, I think they will, are they going to make a more political decision? Or are they going to read the law and say the law is is what the language says, which is if you're guilty of, an, of being involved in an insurrection, you can't run. And the politics of it, last point from for me on, on what you'd raised is the what it, why are Chris Christie and, and Nikki Haley and Vivek why are they all saying the court shouldn't decide this um, is it because they've, they've decided that the court shouldn't have the power to decide what the law is no not really that would be a, kind of a stupid position to take <laughs> It's because they're all competing for those Republican votes uh, that are with Trump right now. So they, they, you know, they say things like this should be decided by the voters, not the judges. 
but they also want him off the ballot. So <laughs> they, they want that the Colorado decision to stand. They probably want the Supreme Court to to look at it and say there's nothing wrong with the decision that Colorado took. But they, as candidates who want those votes, those Trump votes, they don't want to say, we don't think he should be on the ballot. Bravo, Colorado Supreme Court. So they're playing a little bit of a political dance. It is smoke and mirrors uh, in the case of what those candidates are doing. They want that decision to stand. They want Trump off the ballot because they think then it's a race that they have a chance of winning, especially Nikki Haley. And um, I don't know if it's going to if it's going to go that way, but it sure is your spanner in the works. It's a spanner in the works. The um, the argument that they that the candidates, the other candidates, the Christies and Vivek, uh, what's his name, Ramaswamy, and the uh, and the others. The argument that they said the they were saying the wrong thing is based on this because I agree with you. they all want Trump out, right? So, saying what they did said sends a message to the Supreme Court um, in Washington. It's sending a message to them, where the message you know it's a top heavy political court, right? Very much favoring the conservatives, as as we all know from their rulings of the last couple of years. Um, and so if it's a political Supreme Court, then they're looking for a message from the Republican side as to what they want. And so if the message coming back is, we want you to overturn this, which seems to be what they're saying, whether they believe it or not, then that's quite possibly the the result they're going to get from the Supreme Court. If their message had been, the court's right. It should stand by the court. The Supreme Court might have might think a different way. Now, who knows? I mean, a lot of faith is placed in the Supreme Court as one of the three um, areas of uh, you know jurisdiction in the United States that they'll have a major say here. There's a lot of cases that are either already in front of the Supreme Court or are going to be in the in in the next few months as a result of Trump. Um, so all these decisions are going to have an enormous impact on the way this plays out through the year. But as of this moment, he's disqualified from running for the president in one of the states. Um, and that those number of states could grow, and you could have this real battle between states and 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 the federal government or the national government in the United States over uh, who has the right to disqualify. Um, well, I think one of the interesting things that you, you're touching on is the, what is the relationship between the Republican movement, Donald Trump and the Supreme court. And uh, what I've seen happening in the Republican race in the last little while convinces me that more and more of the big money donors and influencers behind the scenes of the Republican party are pushing for Nikki Haley to win. They're putting money into her campaign, the Koch brothers. They're uh, putting a lot of kind of effort to find another candidate than Donald Trump. And the one that they've sort of seemed to have focused on now is Nikki Haley. They don't seem to think that that Ron DeSantis has it anymore and nobody else is, is even really in the game. So if you sort of follow the logic of that, that most uh, of the kind of the Republican machine that isn't full Trump machine 
really doesn't want Trump, think he's a risk to the country, uh, think that he might be a risk to the Republican Party. In other words, that that him being the candidate makes it less likely that Republicans will will win. Um, is that influence uh, the the version of the Republican influence that might happen at the Supreme Court, as opposed to Trump, who appointed uh, some of these judges? And I kind of wonder because these are positions that are appointed for life. You know, once Trump appointed these people, he can't really do anything to them. Um, they don't need to be uh, Trumpy over the Republican Party, if you understand the distinction I'm trying to draw out there, right? If if they think the right thing to do is on the law to uphold the Colorado decision because they see it that way, and they feel that the Republican Party will, on, on some level, kind of be happier uh, if Trump is prevented from running, that may be a, an influence. I mean, we're not used to having politics influence our uh, judicial system in the way that Americans uh, are accustomed to it. But I think the safest bet is that it will influence how they approach it. I just don't know whether they're Trumpy judges or whether they're more Republican judges in the context of how this decision will play itself out politically. Okay, we're going to take... Um... We're going to take a break, but just, just before we do, um, you know, you and I are both of an age where we've seen a lot of stuff happen um, on the political front, in in uh, obviously in our country, but also south of the border. Uh, when you kind of look back to the, uh, the, you know, the Bruce Anderson of the 70s and 80s and 90s, can, do you ever go, what happened? Like, you know, democracy used to be this shining city on a hill, whatever term you want to use, um, that being a, a Reagan one. Mm. Um, do you ever go, what happened here? It, it suddenly has crept up on us or seemingly crept up on us or something's happened. You know, we weren't listening to... We weren't listening to the right people. We were only listening to the people with influence, usually in urban areas in the in, in our countries. And meanwhile, there there's this great expanse of other Canadians, other Americans, who feel they weren't being heard. And this has now boiled over to the point where democracy is not. It's not the only option anymore. You actually have people who are attracted to this idea of dictatorship, fascism, whatever you want to call it. Like what happened? Yeah. I ask myself that question uh, almost every day. And I was having an interesting conversation about it with one of my daughters the other evening. And I, um, and there are times when just having a kind of a family conversation about politics and political issues can feel a little bit, uh, trying for me now because there are so many things that I see uh, that I didn't think I would see uh, in my lifetime. A more difficult set of issues um, that seem kind of large and intractable, but more problematically that we seem to have lost a lot of the impetus to um, find our collective interest, to compromise in the interests of uh, making progress um, and you know, what do I think is behind it? To be honest, I think that um, 
for all the benefits of connectivity uh, in the internet age, uh, the ability for people to express rage and the sentiments that otherwise uh, people would have checked a little bit, that there would have been guardrails on the conversation, that there would have been more of a, an instinct to kind of work through mechanisms that that are built to produce compromise, to produce mutually beneficial solutions, not perfect, but, you know, to the, to the line that has been used a lot better than the other uh, alternatives democracy uh, is. I think that we've now got a culture that is so uh, fixated and impatient on getting its way. And it's not true about everybody, but it is true about a larger number of people. And it's a bigger part of the public conversation than it has ever been. And it's instantaneous, nonstop. Um, so it's influenced politics. It's influenced media. It's influenced government. It has created more tension and friction around the world. Um, I sound like a Luddite saying that it's connectivity. That's, you know, connectivity has produced a lot of good things. But I think that it's unleashed a, a form of energy that rather than politicians and leaders in society figuring out how to limit control and shape um, we're ending up right now anyway, heading in the opposite direction, uh, letting it do things that make it harder to solve climate change, make it harder to keep people um, safe from harm, make it harder to prevent wars from breaking out. And um, so in that conversation with my daughter, uh, she was hearing me be a little bit like that. And, and, uh, she helpfully reminded me that there are some things that have improved. Uh, and she talked about the rights of women. She talked about the way that people think about diversity and inclusion. And I think those are good points. I do think that there have been, um, in my lifetime, significant gains. I think that, that part of what uh, I feel is that a lot of those things are at risk uh, right now. And it, and it, and it, um, and it feels like it's time for people to to talk about them, not kind of wish them away. And uh, anyway, time for that break. <laughs> what yeah, do you think about all? Yeah, of that? almost. Uh, the you know, I I agree with you on all that. And the, the irony, of course, is those gains that you did. The two examples you gave are part of the reason that there's a turn against those gains. Like, yep. there are people who who feel strongly that those aren't gains; those are losses. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, I I don't want this to sound like a plug for the book, although I know it'll come out like that. But one of the things I got in in, in along with Mark Bulgich in, in doing the the research on this book, how Canada works, was a sense from the people that we talked to because they're all you know people that nobody's ever heard of before, generally other than their families and friends. Um, many of them live in small towns in rural parts of the country um and there was a sense from them of respect that we were even talking to them about their life about their work about what matters to them uh in the sense that people of you know my calling hadn't talked to them before Mm. um because I do think that's part of what's happened here. And I do think that's what 
you know, the Roger Ailes and Steve Bannon and their Papa Trump uh, preyed on, yeah. in, you know, 10 years ago as yes. they started off this, this trail. Um, and it's still out there. It's still, a, yeah. it's still an issue. It's still a problem. Yeah. Um, okay, well, uh, we'll take that break, and then we will uh, we will come right back with uh, uh, something very different uh, right after this. And we're back for the final segment of the final episode, regular episode of Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. It's good to have you with us, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, We're, and on YouTube. So wherever you're joining us, uh, glad to have you with us. We've only got a couple of minutes left, so we're kind of robbing this topic, but uh, you funneled me uh, some poll data yesterday that I, I find interesting. In some ways, it kind of fits with the earlier discussion. Um, in other ways, it's very different. But it, it was polling data on um, the issue of support or the lack of it for Joe Biden's um, policy on the Middle East, the Israel-Hamas question in particular. And the it was basically separated by age, you know, young people versus old people, and the gap is enormous. What's that telling us? Yeah, yeah. We had this uh, a version of this conversation a little while ago, I think, where we were talking about this generational disconnect in how older people understand the history of Israel, the history of anti-Semitism, and how that influences the way that they look at the events in the Middle East of the last um, couple of months versus young people whose exposure to that history has been more limited, whose knowledge of that history is uh, more faint, and for whom the more prominent stories that they've consumed about tensions in that part of the world involve a, a sense that the government of Israel, and in particular the Netanyahu government, has not been uh, a good faith actor towards the, uh, the idea of a two-state solution. And I think that the problem that Biden has, and you can see that he's trying to to step away from that situation now, is that by offering a pretty strong measure of support for the Netanyahu government going into Gaza to eradicate Hamas uh, in the wake of the October 7th massacre, he, he shackled himself to somebody who... Um, whose actions he can't control, who is uh, now perpetuating um, trauma on a lot of civilians. And this, for many people, not just young people, is a, uh, it's not something that they want to sign on to. Um, they do believe that Hamas committed atrocious acts of terrorism and need to be dealt with but they don't trust the Netanyahu government to be a good faith actor in trying to get to a place of peace and a two-state solution. And so you're seeing politicians who who don't quite know how to unhook themselves from the Netanyahu government um, take it in the chin, especially from young voters who are saying, we're not denying that the Holocaust or anti-Semitism are important, 
But Netanyahu is not a good faith actor in trying to figure out what to do about this, to get to a place of peace, to understand that that a two-state solution is necessary. And we've seen the Biden administration kind of move uh, their language about the Netanyahu government in the last little while. I think because they feel as though um, they're being implicated in actions that they can't endorse uh, and that they can't control. And the Canadian government, I think, has has felt a similar uh, tension. Um, and a lot of it does have to do with the, uh, uh, the fact that older people have a more uh, vital sense of what this situation means for Jewish people um, because of the history as they consumed it. Whereas younger people, and it's not to suggest that they don't know enough about the past to know what's right, both can be right. Um, it, it can be quite legitimate to say we need to support the Jewish community around the world uh, in the face of this awful rise in anti-Semitism, and we need to support people of Israel uh, in their fight to end this kind of terrorist act. But it can also be true to say that the Netanyahu government is not a friend of the idea of peace, at least in the context of a two-state solution in that region, and that that is the solution that has the greatest chance of saving the most lives for civilians in that region. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, like a lot of people, and the, the, this is why it it's so important that a, a younger generation engage on this topic because we've been all, we've been through it all our lives. You know, since the uh, Israel was founded in 1948, it's been one situation like this, similar to this, after another, ever yeah. since. Uh, and it's time for fresh, new ideas. I mean, you talked about connectivity earlier. I can remember Shimon Perez saying to me, the solution is going to be young people and the fact that they have connectivity that we never had. They can engage. They can talk. Mm-hmm. Um, hasn't happened so far, or it hasn't happened to a degree that a solution has been uh, has been found or worked upon, but um, but it is time that that generation engage. And enough of the of the old guys with old arguments uh, trying to find solutions. Yeah, yeah um, I'm with you. I think we do need, and I think it's in a way it's um, it's difficult to see the conversation become framed as the, do you support Israel or do you support the Palestinian people? When I think the real uh, point that most people want to get to is to find a path to peace that saves civilian lives and recognize that Hamas is a terrorist organization and needs to be dealt with, but that the Netanyahu government is not a, um, can't, can't be counted on to be um, as reliable a partner in that uh, search for peace. As uh, as many people would want, Bruce, we're gonna uh, we're gonna miss you around here on Wednesdays. There's no doubt about that. Your uh, fans are gonna miss you. Your critics are gonna miss you. They won't well, have me. What was Nixon's line? Won't have me to kick around anymore. Something <laughs> like that. Yeah, no. Uh, they'll still they'll still have their chance to get their licks in. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, Peter. And um, I don't know that when we started doing this, that we would think that we would be here with you almost a, a kind of 11 million downloads in 
Yeah, uh, the most right. popular podcast in Canadian politics uh, all the time. Uh, and um, and now you're doing that great newsletter, which if if people haven't signed on to it, it's free. It's called The Buzz. Uh, shows up in your inbox every Saturday. It's fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, you and I are going to continue to talk about politics on Fridays, and we're going to talk about it on our on our time off as, as friends. And um, as I said before, I'll be happy to come back from time to time and do uh, a smoke mirrors and truth uh, episode. But uh, the two a week thing was just a little bit more opinion than I felt I could muster <laughs> on every single week. <laughs> well, we were all benefited from it one way or another. And, and I do appreciate it. Um, Bruce is, as he says, we'll be back on, uh, on Fridays, including this Friday when we have our special uh, kind of year-end edition of, uh, of Good Talk. And if you're looking for the buzz, that newsletter, go to nationalnewswatch.com slash newsletter to sign up. Once again, it's free, and you'll get it in your inbox every Saturday morning by 7 a.m. Eastern. Uh, and it's just kind of a reflection of some of the stories that I've been watching each week and, uh, and a few anecdotes along the way. Um, so that's it for this day. Tomorrow, it's uh, it's your turn, and I've, I've been blown away by the number of letters that we've had this week of people responding to my suggestion the other day of your favorite Christmas memory. Uh, we'll have those. Uh, we'll have the the, uh, the the best of the of the group, or at least the best according to me uh, of the group. And the winner at the end will receive a signed copy of you guessed it, How Canada Works. Friday, it's Good Talk uh, with Chantel and Bruce. Uh, also tomorrow, the Random Ranter and his uh, his thoughts for the holiday season. Thanks again, Bruce. We'll talk, we'll talk on Friday. And uh, that's it for this day. Thanks for All listening. Right. Talk soon, Pete. Yep. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.